1 Kings chapter 5, continuing our series, looking at the life of King Solomon, understanding that both Solomon's life teaches us about living as believers, but it also teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll be reading the whole chapter of 1 Kings 5. Our theme for this morning is building God's house. Let's read together. This is God's holy word. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There's neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David my father, your son whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. Now therefore command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me and my servants will join your servants and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there's no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I've heard the message that you've sent me. I am ready to do all you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servants shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts to go by the sea to the place you direct. And I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it. And you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired, while Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country, besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. At the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gabal did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading, hearing, and preaching of his holy word. As humans, we love the idea of building things, right? Of building something that will outlast us, something that will make a significant contribution to society. Uh, one of the sort of building projects that often is, is meant to leave a mark is uh, uh, sports stadiums. Uh, ju just last year, the owner of the Tottenham Hotspur English Football Club 
or soccer for you Americans, uh, they built a new stadium that was six years in the making at a cost of $1.2 billion. And this was just the brainchild of the owner, Daniel Levy, who wanted to make a mark with a brand new state-of-the-art stadium. This was his dream, to, to, to build this, this stadium where this sport could be experienced. And there's similarity here to David's desire to build a temple for God. Or, as the language often is in scripture, a dwelling place for the name of the Lord. If you read the book of Exodus, you'll notice that it climaxes with the construction of the tabernacle. That, that small, rectangular, uh, draped with cloth structure where God's presence came. And it was a mark of God's dwelling among his people. But in this wilderness time, the tabernacle was moving. It, it had to be mobile to go wherever the people went. And it was always meant that God would have a permanent place of worship. God said as much in Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 11. He said that in the future, he would choose a place to make his name dwell. And that's where worship would take place. And so it was right that David had it in his heart to build a temple, a dwelling place for the name of the Lord, a permanent place of worship. And this language is really significant. It says in scripture, a dwelling place for the name of God. Now, what does it mean for a name to dwell somewhere? Well, this is where I think that, that image of the sports stadium is really helpful. You see, the name of the Spurs dwells in that stadium. Not that each of the players forever lives there, but that that stadium represents the most significant activity of that football club, that the sport that they play. And their name is marked all over that building. In the same way, the temple is a dwelling for the name of the Lord in that the most significant acts of worship take place at the temple. When people think of God, when they thought of Jehovah, they would think of the temple, the dwelling place of God, the place of his particular presence. And so the name of the Lord dwelt particularly in the temple. And David wanted to build a glorious dwelling place for the name of God because his name is high and exalted and it deserves a fit, glorious place for it to be received. But as we were told right at the beginning of our passage that God wouldn't let David build the temple because David was a man of war. The task would fall to Solomon his son. And even David's final charge to Solomon in 1 Chronicles 22:19, he simply says, "Arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God." And so what we read in our passage is the beginning of this construction project, the beginning of Solomon to prepare to build this dwelling place for the name of the Lord God. And we look at this and we think, "Wow, what an amazing opportunity Solomon had to create something in which the spirit and presence of God dwelt. What an amazing opportunity he had. But we need to remember today that this is not limited to the work of Solomon. Every believer is called to be a part of building the temple of the Lord in our lives, in our families, and in our church communities. Every believing heart is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we want to be building lives of holiness that befit the spirits and dwelling. We know that God has relationship with believing households and we want to create families that are marked by the presence and blessing of the Lord. 
We want to see church communities where the sense of God's presence is known and the results, the fruit of the Spirit, permeate all we do. We still have a building project that we're each a part of to build dwellings for the name of the Lord God. But this work, building lives, building families, building churches, it is no easy task. It's difficult. It's demanding. We feel the difficulty. Solomon sensed the monumental nature of his task. And what I want us to see from this passage this morning is three principles that Solomon applied in his building of the temple. And to see that we can glean similarly from these principles as we go about our work building lives for the Lord God. And the three things that it takes in the work of building God's house are holy intentions, strategic partnerships, and community efforts. So that's what we're looking at this morning. Holy intentions, strategic partnerships, and community efforts. Uh, Take a look in your Bibles at verses 4 and 5. Solomon's describing his mission to Hiram. He says, But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There's neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David my father, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. I love Solomon's just forthright statement. I intend to build a house For the name of the Lord my God. Really, every spiritually good work begins with an intention of our heart to actually perform it. But good works, true spiritually good, they require holy intentions. Ones that are connected to God. And we notice from these three marks of Solomon's holy intentions. We, We notice three aspects of the reservoir from which these holy intentions flow. The first thing we see is that holy intentions flow from relationship with God. Solomon says, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord, my God. Not just my father's God, not just the God of my people, but my God. Solomon had personal relationship with God. And this is an intention that's coming from this covenant relationship with the Lord. And so this reminds us that God's spirit only indwells those who personally trust and love him. And so if we are to even begin building a life, a family, a church for the name of the Lord, it begins with a heart that's taken God to be my God. These holy, sanctified intentions flow from relationship with God, but they also flow from gratitude to God. Take a look again at verse 4. Solomon says, But now the Lord has given me rest on every side. There's neither adversary nor misfortune. Solomon recognizes that God has graciously gifted him peace. Unlike David who lived in warfare, God has given Solomon peace and stability. And from this beautiful foundation, Solomon says, I will now arise and build. And similarly in the Christian life, when we recognize the glorious peace that Christ has purchased for us, out of gratitude for his great deliverance, we want to do great things for the Lord. Holy intentions flow from gratitude to God, but they also flow through humility before God. Solomon says, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. Before he built his own house, he wanted to build a temple for God's name, 
not his name, not so that he could get the credit as the great temple builder, as the one who created one of the wonders of the ancient world. No, the goal was that this house would be for the name of the Lord, for the glory of God. Not for Solomon's own fame or legacy. Our confession of faith in chapter 16, verse 7, reminds us that if our good works are to be truly spiritually good, they need to be done to the right end, the glory of God. We are called to do all things, whether we eat or drink, to the glory of God. Uh, Boys and girls, do you guys remember the Pharisees? Those Pharisees that Jesus encounters constantly in his ministry. Well, the problem with the Pharisees even though it looked like they were doing the right things on the outside, they weren't doing them for the right end. They weren't doing them for the glory of God. They were doing them that they would be praised. That people would say, wow, look at how well that guy prays. Or, wow, look at how much money that guy gives away. They were not having intentions to glorify God, even in their spiritual activities. We want to be people who in these lives we're building, we're doing it because we have relationship with God. We're grateful for what Christ has done for us. And we humbly want God to receive all the glory in our lives. These are the sorts of outflows of our hearts that we want to see in our lives. And as we approach the new year, this is often a time for many of us when uh, we are reflecting on our lives, dreaming, aiming, thinking for what's Next, what's next in my life? What's next in my family? What sorts of things do I want? And the question I just want us to be challenged with this morning on this regard is what difference is the gospel making to the aims you have for your future? That is, how do your intentions for this next year differ from the intentions of your unbelieving neighbors? Or Do you basically just want the same things they do? This is a question we need to challenge ourselves with. How are our life plans and aims and intentions and strivings different because we follow Jesus? Where is the spirituality in what we are seeking to build for God in our lives? Or is it just the status quo? We need to be aiming higher. Aiming at total communion with the Lord. Perfect love for neighbor. Knowing we'll never make it in this life but we want to progress, to intend to move forward. It is good to aim high. I I had some friends a few years ago who, right after they graduated high school, they decided they would bike ride around the world, cross every continent on their bikes. An ambitious, a wild plan. And you know what? They didn't make it. They didn't bike ride around the world. But they rode their bikes from Vancouver to the tip of South America, They crossed two continents. And because their ambitions were great, they made a significant mark. And I think for many of us, we need to be aiming a whole lot higher in our Christian lives, hoping that we can just progress a little more of the way towards heaven. Not saying, ah, this task is too great, I'll just sit at home. No, get on the bike and ride. These are the sort of holy intentions we should have. And as we see the difficulty of the work before us, we see how um, arduous is this task, we recognize that none of us actually has all the resources that we need in order to accomplish this. But we also need in our lives strategic partnerships along with our holy intentions. 
Uh, go back to verse 2. We read, Solomon sent word to Hiram. Okay, so Solomon reaches out to Hiram, explains his desire to build this house for God, and then makes a request of him in verse 6. Okay, jump down to verse 6. Now therefore, this is Solomon to Hiram, command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. My servants will join your servants, and I will pay for your servants' wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. So what Solomon's saying here is that I don't have the sort of lumber that is fitting for the temple of God. I don't even have the workers who are skilled enough to even cut this sort of timber. And so Solomon offers Hiram an international trade agreement. And Hiram likes the idea, and he responds in summary saying, yes, you know, we'll do it, we'll cut the timbers, we'll send it down to you on rafts. But here's what I want in return. He says, you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So this is a good agreement. Tyre has the cedars that Solomon wants, and Israel has the sort of food and crops that would help Tyre. So they make a deal, a trade agreement, to exchange these goods for their mutual profit. And this is considered to be an act of wisdom. This is what we're told in verse 12 in summary. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. These actions were the result of wisdom. So we see how this free trade between nations at peace for mutual profit was considered wise. Solomon recognized his needs and sought assistance even outside of his own borders, outside of the borders of Israel. And something we learn here is that it takes humility to recognize that we have needs that other people can meet. And that's why it's so important as Christians to have conversation partners in the faith, those to walk alongside us as we discuss spiritual matters, to be able to learn from each other. That's why we have small groups in this church, to, to, to provide an intentional, focused time where we can receive of the gifts and words of one another to be built up in the faith. But just as Solomon had to go beyond his own borders, so also having a, a wide and broad range of Christian relationships can be a great benefit in our lives. And what I mean is that making friendships with believers from other Protestant traditions can greatly broaden and deepen your conception of the Christian faith. That is, it can expose blind spots in your thinking or open your eyes to concerns outside of your regular experience. And so this could be relationships with Christians from other denominational traditions or other uh, different ethnic and racial backgrounds or different cultural and political backgrounds. And we can learn from one, one another and grow in the faith as we provide what sometimes can be lacking in each one of our lives. We can listen to and learn from each other. And one other partnership, one of the greatest partnerships that God gifts is actually the partnership between a husband and wife. In a marriage, that's a built-in partner that God has given strategically for mutual edification and for accomplishing the mission he's given to his people. And the marriage relationship is one that ought to be leveraged for mutual profit. Husbands, wives, your spouse has gifts that differ from your own. They have wisdom that you don't have. And so to be able to learn from one another as you discuss God's word, as you 
talk about life, as you pray together, as you work and serve together, use one another to grow in the faith. Marriage can be such a powerful, life-transformative partnership as we go in the work God has called us to. This difficult work, this difficult work that requires holy intentions, that makes us need to partner together, because the work is so difficult. But the work is also so great, so vast and so broad, that we also need the efforts of the whole community. Everyone has a part to play. Take a look at verse 13. King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. So Solomon has a a labor conscription. He conscripts people to labor. That seems maybe uh, odd to us, but this would be very normal for a king to do such a thing. Uh, Samuel even even foretold that this would be the work of kings. In 1 Samuel 8.16, he told Israel that a king will take your male and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. So Solomon conscripts labor, but really he is generous as a sort of employer. They work one month and then get two months off. Not a bad deal. I think I'd take that. One month on, two months off. And this continues in verse 15. Solomon had 70,000 burden bearers, 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country, besides Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work. Now, these uh, stone cutters and these burden bearers were most likely the Canaanites that Israel had subdued in the land, but not made an end of. These were people that they had put to forced labor. And it was said that they would be drawers of water, hewers of wood, cutters of stone. And these numbers are pretty staggering. And so it's most likely that they were quarrying stone for projects more than just the temple. Maybe other other projects Solomon had going on. But still, it's a great multitude of people. Overall, there's 183,300 people listed here. And it's helpful to remember that we often credit all these sorts of great things to those like Solomon the one who's kind of overseeing the whole work. But most often in our lives, we're not the Solomon type. We're the, we're the hewer of a stone. We're, we're a rafter of some timber. But because the work is great, it requires each one to do his part. And there's joy in the participation in the work, no matter how small the role is. Um, I can imagine, I just think of one of those, say, one of those 80,000 stone cutters going to the temple one day and just thinking, hmm, I wonder if that's a stone I cut that's now in the house of the Lord. Uh, if, if you're friends with anyone who works in the trades, it can often be fun if you're driving around. Uh, you're driving downtown and as you're driving, they'll just, they'll just be pointing out, oh yeah, I, I put down some tiles in that hotel. Oh yeah, I, I, I did the lighting in, in that McDonald's. And there's joy in even having a small part in a greater project. And this life of building the church of God It's not a solo project. It's not the work of a minister or the elders, but one for each child of God. We need to be working together. Uh, Do you remember when we heard back in the series on Philippians, in Philippians chapter 1, where Paul says that he desires to see the church with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what we all should be together. One mind, striving 
No one gets away with not striving, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Because every child of God has been gifted to serve in the kingdom of God. To serve with holy intentions in our hearts, strategic partnerships together, and community efforts. But when we think of all this, it sounds great. But what happens when your good intentions never materialize? When your strategic partnerships devolve into hostile relationships? When the community you are seeking to build fractures or divides or crumbles? When you reach that point where each one of us realizes that we've been spending more time building up our kingdoms, houses for our name, living for our own ease, profit, and pleasure than we've been living to build up the church of God. And so we recognize that if it was up to us to create such a life, to create such a church that was so fit and beautiful that God would dwell in it, we would never have relationship with God. And that's why, once again, we see that we need the greater temple builder than Solomon. We need the Lord Jesus Christ who had intention in his heart. He intended to come and to purchase a people for God. He stated his mission in, in Matthew 16, 18. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus had intentions to build the church, but he didn't do it by exalting himself and taking power and subduing peoples. Jesus builds the church, first of all, by becoming low and laying down his life to be an atoning, covering sacrifice for his people to become the foundation on which all the other work of building takes place. He makes reconciliation between us and God such that we're told in Ephesians 2.20 that Jesus Christ has become the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's what the church of God is, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see that temple language. Through Christ, the church has become a beautiful, exquisite dwelling place for God. Because of the forgiving work of Christ, every believing heart is a glorious, purified habitation of the Holy Spirit. And so even though in our best works, in our best attempts to build for God, we see the imperfections, we see the failings, we know that there is still beauty in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I was reminded of the section of our confession where we're told that our works are imperfect. Even our best ones are laced with sin, but that as God looks upon believers in his Son, God is pleased to accept and reward good works that are sincere, although they're accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. God accepts our good works coming from sincere faith, aiming at his glory. Our participation in God's temple-building program, that's what we're called to, participating in God's temple-building program in our lives, our families, and our churches, is kind of like a, a young boy going to work with his dad outside. Uh, you can just imagine a father, he's outside and filling a wheelbarrow with sand. Load after load, and, and his three-year-old son comes out and he wants to help. 
He's got his little plastic shovel and he puts it in the sand. As he's carrying it to the wheelbarrow, most of the sand is falling out. A little bit gets in. Does the father reprimand the son for his efforts? No, he's delighted that his boy wants to work with him in the task. And that's in many ways what the Christian life is like. We've got our shovels, our little piece of work we want to do to help build a beautiful dwelling for the Lord in our world. And though we often fail and sand falls out, the point is that these tasks are not duties and mere obligations, but they're opportunities for fellowship with our Heavenly Father. Obedience is an opportunity to commune with God, to partner with him in the work he's doing in this world. That's the sort of building project we get to be involved with, one with a, lovingly, a loving Heavenly Father. As we take up and build with holy intentions, partnered together, making strivings as a community of faith. That's what we want to be aiming at this year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you invite us into a task that's greater than ourselves. You invite us into the glorious vision of your kingdom, something that will outlast this temporal world. Lord, we ask that you would set our hearts and minds on the things of eternity, that we would be people with eyes lifted to the heavens, hearts inclined towards the things of God, that you would purify the intentions of our heart. Show us where we're aiming for things that are too low for a child of God, where we're aiming mere at the mere objects of the world instead of aiming at the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Help us to be people who open ourselves up to the benefits of others, who speak your word to one another, and people that seek to do our part in building lives, families, and communities of worship, places where your name dwells and represent God before this world. We ask for the help of your Holy Spirit within us, that he would purify all our intentions, that all our efforts for good would be accepted for Jesus' sake. Lord, we bring these humble requests to you in his name. Amen.